Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. And be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Welcome to True Magic, the podcast where we are learning to do spiritual service with our physical bodies by learning about the spiritual meaning encoded into the physical forms of creation. Last time, we looked at clothing as communication, and especially how clothing communicates our identities. It communicates both our given identities, shaped by the nature of the culture that we are born into, and our chosen identities, the subculture and aesthetics and belief systems that we voluntarily choose. In this episode, we are going to take a deeper look at identity itself. We're going to ask what identity even is, and then see how our clothing participates in it in various ways, for good or ill, and what implications this has for our piety, for how we ought to live as Christians. As always, we're going to draw heavily on the history of clothing to see not just how this works out in our tiny, weird, abnormal slice of time, but across culture, especially Western culture, since that's our heritage. We want that larger sample size because it will help us to see the creational patterns that God built into the world and get a broader view for how they can be applied. So let's start with a question that seems too obvious to require answering until you try to answer it. What is identity? And the way I break this down, there are two key aspects to identity, which I really just talked about just before. The first one, the most obvious aspect these days, is what you might call asserted identity or chosen identity. And basically, it's about who do I say that I am? What are my pronouns? What are my pronouns? So 1 Corinthians 2nd 11 says, For who among men knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of the man which is in him? There is a, a spirit within each of us who is who we are. And the only way that anyone can know who that spirit is, is if the person, the man, the spirit within him tells them. So there is a sense in which this is a very primary form of identity. But the second kind of identity, which to our modern Western minds is much more controversial, is conferred identity. And this is about who do others say that I am? And this is the much more interesting element to me, and I would further divide it in half and say that there are two critical components. The first is our actual created nature. So, for instance, Genesis 127, God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. This tells us that man by nature comes in two kinds, male and female, and by nature is God's image. When God makes you, he says, you are his image. And he says, you are a male or a female. And because what God says actually constitutes reality, he speaks reality into existence, you cannot change it. These are things that are necessarily true, and you will never escape them. You will always be a man or woman made in God's image. So that's nature. And that's part of the spirit within us is it's given to us. The spirit within us knows who we are because we are made in a particular way. The other part of conferred identity is corporate inclusion. So you've got nature, but then you've also got corporate inclusion. In other words, what body or bodies are you a member of? An obvious example of this, to us in the modern day at least, is what nation are you born into? But historically, that wasn't nearly as significant as what clan and especially what household you were born into. Before the Industrial Revolution, across all history and all cultures, the household was man's central and most fundamental unit of identity. People were born into this household body, and they were expected to participate in it, and as they did so, 
They also came to know who they were and what their place was in the world. The whole family was naturally bound by the work that was needed to live, and it was bound into a, a basic society in which each member participated for the greater good and in turn found their principal meaning. This sounds like the start of an interesting rubber trail. It could be the start of an interesting rabbit trail. I am not going to follow it. The household is something that we should explore, maybe in its own episode, but I suspect that we'll go over it repeatedly throughout many episodes because it's very fundamental. But right now, I'm just using it to give an example of how identity can be conferred and should be conferred from outside us. In the pattern that God established in creation, the existence of people at the deepest level is constituted in their households, just as the existence of every part of a body is constituted in that body. Existence and identity are bound up together, so who you are is decided by who you are born to. I suppose one example of this is that you don't name yourself. Your family names you. They literally give you your name identity, don't they? Right. And this is why genealogies are so important in scripture. One of the reasons, yes. And I want to come back to this idea of corporate identity in a later episode as well, because there's a lot to say, especially as it relates to what John Verveke would call the modern meaning crisis. But for now, I'll just reiterate what we touched on last week about how these kinds of conferred identities, these natural embodied organic ways in which we know who we are, have been weakened or even obliterated to the point of meaninglessness. And in their place, we have artificial, abstract, chosen identities. We have elevated our internal subjective sense of identity to a laughable degree of importance because we have abandoned the external objective identity givers. Although you can't really abandon them. You end up hustling them out the front door only to smuggle them in through the back door again. For instance, by wearing clothes that identify us as being part of a particular body, even if it's something as superficial and artificial as being a fan of a particular sports team. Right, so this gets us to what clothing even has to do with identity, which obviously is largely visual. Why is it that clothes can visually incorporate us into a body? Why is it that what we wear can confer identity on us? And again, this sounds like an obvious question, because they just do, and we all know that they just do, why ask questions about something so obvious? But I think it's fruitful to ask questions like this so that we can understand the symbolic pattern better, because it's only by understanding it well that we can know how to participate in it rightly, rather than just by instinct or by following whatever our culture is currently doing, which, needless to say, is fundamentally antichrist and demonically steered in many critical ways. So besides getting us on three-letter agency watch lists, what are you trying to say? I'm trying to draw our attention to two things. Firstly, How people identify us is largely by what we look like. And secondly, what we look like is actually conferred and not chosen. Our face is the most obvious element of this, but our whole body is part of our appearance, how we look. And this is all given to us. We look like those we are descended from. There's a whole symbolism of both the face and of fatherhood that is worth exploring, but we'll reserve that for another time as well, because the season is about clothing. The face of the father is visited upon the children. As we have established already, clothing is an extension of our bodies. It glorifies our appearance. Yeah, it's an intimate reflection of ourselves, both of how we see ourselves and how we want to be seen. And that's the first part of identity, who we say we are. But as we hinted last time, clothing historically was much more bound up with the second part, who others say we are. Which is especially interesting, 
Because obviously who we say we are is not sealed off from who others say we are. There's the trope of, you know, if you treat someone like a criminal, he'll start acting like one. And that's because, as social animals, our self-perception is strongly directed and guided and even controlled by social perception. Anyone who's ever been effectively gaslighted knows this. Gaslit. Gaslit. Gaslit, yes. You wrote this. Anyone who's ever been effectively gaslit knows this. And there's a whole episode on that topic, at least. But the point for now is this. If you can direct, en masse, how people dress, you can direct how they perceive themselves, both individually and collectively. Who is the in-group? Who is the out-group? Who are kin and who are other? This is what we're going to be talking about today. The various ways in which clothing has been used to forge and direct collective identities to include and exclude people from those identities, to unite some under one body and to divide others from it. It's important to say at the outset that this is not necessarily unnatural or sinister. When you explain it like this, it can sound kind of like it's dystopian, right? But this is an application of the language of clothing. And as we talked about last time, language is bound up with culture and thus with identity, with the bodies that form us and give our lives meaning and tell us our place in the world, the power of clothing to direct this can be used for good or ill, but it is fundamentally a creational pattern that God built into the world, so it is not in itself evil or abusive or dystopian. Please excuse the rain noise. We have deferred recording this episode for long enough that we have just discussed this amongst ourselves and decided that unless it gets extremely loud we are going to continue and you can regard it as one of those soothing background sounds that people like to have when ASMR. They yeah. Go to sleep on ASMR podcast. is mostly witchcraft. Really? Mm, that's but another that's another time. Yeah. <laughs> Talking nonsense. ASMR is witchcraft. So it's definitely important to understand that clothing being used to create and manipulate identity isn't necessarily an evil thing. Because a lot of the examples we'll look at do tend to spark a kind of automatic outrage in our modern minds. So let me give an example of a good application of this, a way that we use clothing naturally and innocently to direct and shape identity. Imagine a family dressed in matching Christmas pyjamas for their Christmas card photo. They're communicating, we are the Joneses. They're communicating it to themselves, and especially to their children, and of course to the whole world. And it's good that their children get the special privilege of dressing up like their parents, And it would be bad if their parents invited random other children to do the same thing and take photos with them. That would essentially be communicating that their kids are not uniquely special to them, that they don't participate in the family identity in some way that other children can't. It would also be particularly obnoxious if they had, for example, all of their biological children dressed in the pyjamas, but their adopted kid didn't get to wear them. You know, people would be like, huh. (laughs) That would be dystopian. Yeah. So it's easy to think of similar kinds of examples. A group of friends goes to Disneyland wearing matching t-shirts. The gang in Stranger Things dresses up as Ghostbusters for Halloween. Bridesmaids and groomsmen wear matching outfits. And everyone knows this is not only right and good, but really, someone coming in the same outfit to the wedding who isn't part of the bridal party, that's the person that's actually the one that's engaging in antisocial, unnatural, possibly even sinister behavior. Indeed. And you've got sports teams and choirs and even graduands. Anytime you have a uniform of some kind, it is an honour to wear the uniform of a policeman, unless you're impersonating one. These are more recognisable, even culturally formalised examples. But if we generalise this principle, you realise that people follow this pattern all the time. Everyone in any social group dresses to at least somewhat match their peers. 
To use the language as clothing metaphor again, they adopt the accent of those that they are like. We all intuit that people who are socially alike in some way ought to look physically alike in some way. In a workplace, even without HR telling you what you can and can't wear, people do tend to come to some mutually agreed upon code of formality. And people at a church or a book club will do the same thing. If you go even to a dinner party with friends, you won't usually find a highly diverse range of dress styles, like some people in black ties and some who are complete slobs and a few kind of alternative subculture people. That pattern might even manifest in their daily lives, with some wearing suits more of the time and some wearing jeans and t-shirts more of the time. But when they get together for their dinner party, they're all probably going to be on a more similar wavelength dress-wise. Even if you get a group of very sort of arty theatre types who wear very sort of flamboyant, distinct clothing and they all look quite different from each other, that itself will be the dress code of the group is that wear the kind of zany, wacky ones who wear the over-the-top clothes. This is where stereotypes come from about how soccer moms dress or how dads dress when they go bowling. It's a way that we try consciously or unconsciously to belong, to signal membership in a social group or class, or to use more biblical language, a body. It is natural to us to feel trust and kinship with people who look like us, which includes dressing like us, and to feel suspicion or distaste for people who look other. So if you look at slurs and stereotypes aimed at outgroups, they are often directed to the clothing as a kind of a shorthand for the people's weird foreign otherness. You might have heard Western soldiers refer to Middle Eastern enemies as ragheads or towelheads, and those kinds of insults are nasty. They have a real sting to them. And yet more watch lists have now been added. I'm not proving of this, for the record. You just said ragheads, <laughs> so... The ancients, or pre-moderns in general, often depicted those who were not part of their social body as being visually confused in a similar way. So in medieval manuscripts, for instance, you'll have people who are very other being depicted as chimeras or monsters, some kind of confusion of animal and person, often as the cynocephalus, the dog-headed men. So not quite human. Yeah, like the barbarians are depicted as cynocephali because they bark, 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 bark. It's like yep. they're, the way that they're being drawn, the appearance is reflective of how they're seen as yeah. people. That's interesting, because if you look at people who've had to deal with a large range of people groups, like the Romans, who had this massive far-flung empire, they had a very strong sense of who was a Roman and who was just under the empire, were you a citizen or a barbarian. And eventually they signified this with clothing. Only a Roman citizen had the right to wear the toga. They also took a rather dim view of the British, who, to be fair, were culturally and technologically, you know, way behind them. The British wore a lot of blue from Wode, so blue never really caught on as a Roman colour. It was seen as a kind of a lower-class, foreign, yucky colour. And more amusingly, the Romans were for a very long time opposed to trousers. They thought that trousers were not only barbarian, but effeminate, because only a wimp would need separate little cosy tubes for each leg. You know, if you were a real hardy soldier man, you'd just man up and wear a tunic and not get cold like a sissy. Easy to say in a Mediterranean climate. Yeah, after trying to occupy what is now Scotland for many years, the Romans did eventually come to the conclusion that trousers weren't actually the worst idea, and eventually they did catch on, even in Rome. So how did the Romans decide that togas were only for citizens? Was it a kind of organic process of social separation that everyone agreed on, or was it imposed from the top down? I believe it was imposed from the top down. I know there were rules about who who could sit where in you know amphitheatres. The people with the togas were at the front, which was men, obviously, because women were scholars. Unless they were prostitutes. That was a really weird little thing there. Mm. Um, and everyone who wasn't wearing the toga, who had the sort of the darker coloured things, would, were behind them. They did have a bit of trouble getting common people to wear the toga at all, because it was super uncomfortable. At, at a certain point in the, in the late empire, there could be as much as six metres of fabric. That, that had heavy. to be draped. Yeah, it was extremely cumbersome, and it was sort of more of a ceremonial dress. 
But it was considered very much in keeping with Roman virtue and Roman civilization and ability. So yes, people would occasionally get into trouble for trying to get the good seats in the Colosseum by putting on a toga when they weren't uh, entitled to it. And they got in trouble. So for a lot of history, a lot of this dividing people up by clothing was done very deliberately from the top down. There is a category of law dating back to the ancient Greeks used worldwide, a very, very cross-cultural thing here, called sumptuary law. Sumptuary as in consumption and sumptuous. Its simplest definition is a law that regulates the possession of consumer goods, especially luxury ones. So this included more than clothing. There are sumptuary laws regarding all sorts of things like food and tobacco and feasts and funerals, you name it. But clothing was a primary focus of sumptuary laws. These laws had lots of different rationales, but they all ultimately kind of come back to maintaining the identity of the social body. Give me an example. What's one of the rationales? Let's actually go through the major ones in turn, because they are all quite interesting in their own ways. The first rationale was to prevent the country or empire from declining due to effeminacy. This was a surprisingly major concern, both for the Romans and the late medievals. And the idea was that women overindulging in luxury was bad, because it frittered away their husband's money, and it was sort of considered a thing women were particularly prone to. You know, they're women, they like luxury. It but still at least, is. Yeah, you don't give your wife your credit card and just let her loosen a mall. Yeah, she'll buy fur coats. But, you know, at least it was considered to be a natural foible of women, whereas men overindulging in luxury was a much more sinister evil. It was a kind of societal dry rot that would inevitably lead to the decline of the empire. Seneca, for example, despaired of the pampered men of his day because they would laze around in the hot baths and cool their drinks with ice. And he wanted them to go back to being the kind of hardy, rugged, virtuous soldiers. Who drank tepid water. Yeah, and enjoyed it. And, you know, if you look at what happened to the Roman Empire, you could perceive this as a little prescient, in fact. So they thought that forbidding certain clothes would help. Indeed. So under Tiberius, Roman sumptuary laws forbade men to wear silk. And did it work? It did not. Men wore silk. And the empire fell. (laughs) So preventing effeminacy... Not necessarily effective in terms of sumptuary laws, but a good rationale for imposing sumptuary laws, even if it was of questionable efficacy. I think we'll hold off to a later episode in passing firm judgments from scripture about whether these kinds of laws are good or bad. But on the face of it, this is an example of the magistrate doing what he is charged with, upholding good and putting down evil. And it rubs every strand of our modern intuitive fur the wrong way, but... I don't really trust our modern intuitive fur very much. What's next? Well, a related rationale was preventing immorality. Now, modesty standards have changed throughout history, and so have the degree to which laws actually cared about them. And decency laws aren't necessarily strictly considered sumptuary laws, but there are a few notable examples. The pointed shoes that you think of when you think of a medieval picture from the 14th to the 16th century, they were very popular and tremendously controversial. For one thing, they made it difficult to kneel at prayer, for another, they were considered a symbol of, quote-unquote, sodomitic lusts. No good men would stuff the toes of their shoes to make them appear more suggestive, and then they would stand on street corners and waggle their toes at passers-by. The church called these shoes Satan's Claws, and there were various sumptuary laws restricting their length, and in 1362 the Pope banned them, but he was basically ignored. This will become a bit of a theme. Okay, interesting. Satan's Claws, phallic toes... Do we have any more normal examples? Well, according to a Renaissance law passed in Italy, a woman's neckline could not be lower than two fingers' breadth below the suprasternal notch on the chest and the same in the back. So this is very specific. You know, people say you can't mandate morality, and history says, oh, can't I? Interestingly, What many... else would you mandate? 
Well, I mean, ultimately. Indeed. But, you know, the point is they got quite nitty-gritty, right? You know, it was like mm. measuring with the fingers. And interestingly, many, many societies have mandated specific dress for prostitutes. It's sometimes unclear if this was kind of a badge of shame thing or if it was just a way of advertising their trade and, you know, pre- preventing hilarious misunderstandings on the street corner. It is interesting that you would specify what prostitutes must wear but not necessarily forbid the prostitution itself. No, well, that's pretty normal historically, isn't it? Prostitution mm. has, has mostly been regulated rather than outright banned. But, you know, sometimes it wasn't even things that you'd think of as kind of sensual clothing items. It was like you had to wear a striped armband or a striped hood Mm. or a little cloak or something, you know. Okay, so the first and the second rationales primarily have to do with immorality, effeminacy, and immorality more generally. What about the third rationale? The third rationale was to protect the dignity and splendor of kings. So whether you were a truly regnant king or you're just sort of a ceremonial figurehead, your power was largely related to the fact that you were separated from the common folk. You know, you were up there and they were down there. And clothing is a very good way to indicate that you are higher than other people. So some things were banned for everybody except the king or emperor or whoever. Uh, most famously, you've got the purple cloth made with the dye from the murex snails. And at various points in ancient Rome, that was restricted to the nobility or the royal family or even just Caesar alone. And of course, in different times and places, it was different things. In ancient China, the forbidden color was yellow. That was for the emperor. The fourth rationale was to promote a national or cultural identity. During the early years of the French Revolution, citizens were required to wear the revolutionary tricolour, a little cockade veggie thing with ribbons. And if you failed to show your colours, you could be jailed. So establishing or promoting national or cultural identity is obviously a very basic, fundamental example of the, the purpose of some tree laws. So, like we've talked about immorality being a rationale, but that's to protect the identity of the nation. But here we've got one where it's really just about the nation itself. Like this is thing that we wear. There's no larger issue involved. It's really just about the appearance. But then there's also a flip side to that, where if you have some kind of a national dress, something that distinctively identifies you, prohibiting that is a very effective way of demoralizing a people and erasing their cultural identity. And the English did this to the Scots with the disclothing laws banning the wearing of tartans. The British actually imposed that on a lot of the civilizations they colonized. So one example that comes to mind, which wasn't necessarily intended to be in any way a sinister or negative thing, that these are people who thought they were doing the right thing. But think of the missionaries who go to foreign cultures And along with the gospel, they insist that the way that God requires them to live is to wear Western clothing. Yes. And it's not just a case of, you know, you have to cover up the top. (laughs) Okay, you've got some African tribe or whatever, and they they go topless, even the women. You should solve that problem. But they have to solve it by wearing Western clothes. They were sort of conflating Christianizing with civilizing and civilizing with Westernizing. Right. And it all was a package deal. Right, and presumably because they hadn't thought these things through sufficiently and they were intuiting that the appearance is part and parcel with our christian identity yeah and so these guys need to take on our christian identity and thus they must look like us yeah i mean you had the odd uh, counterexample. you know hudson taylor famously went to china and mm. dressed himself like a chinese yeah. person which nowadays and even would be cultural appropriation and considered very you know not the thing to do yeah but that was very abnormal and of course he got and yeah, he was greatly, <laughs> no one liked it. But it was such a wasted opportunity, really, because you could have said, look, you know, the Bible says you should not be next to naked. That's a legitimate moral thing that your culture has become blind to over time. But then gone on to create vibrant local clothing hmm. styles. 
they, they didn't have to dress like white people from Britain when they were not white people from Britain. And in fact, that was a ridiculous way to dress in the climate. There are also other odd examples, like um, Peter the Great. Peter the Great is a funny one because he is an example of a ruler trying to erase his own people's identity. Uh, Peter the Great of Russia was a big fan of the West. He was like a total Western fanboy. And he wanted to westernize and modernize Russia. So he banned traditional Russian clothing. So men who had been previously wearing these very comfortable fur-lined long coats and stuff, you know, very good in Russian weather, now had to basically freeze in pants and German and French, you know, suits. Weirdly, he even banned traditional Russian beards, which was very unpopular, especially with the older men. Men who insisted on wearing them had to pay a beard tax, and they had to carry around a coin proving they had paid it, otherwise they could be unceremoniously shaven on the street. Very peculiar. Yes. So we mentioned that this would get sinister, or at least we implied that it would. (laughs) What about the fifth reason for sumptuary laws? The fifth reason was to mark people out, individually or collectively, as undesirables. Which naturally follows on from the idea of being culturally, visually distinct. Yeah. Here you're not trying to erase the cultural identity, you're trying to you're trying to set the cultural identity apart as something to be visually identified in order to separate from it and discriminate against discriminate it. Against yeah. it. So when you think of this, you probably think of Nazis and Jewish stars of David. That's a very obvious example from our recent history, but the tradition of badges of shame goes back way further. The Nazis actually got the Star of David idea from a 9th century Muslim caliph who declared that Jews and Christians in his lands had to wear identifying badges, and theoretically as a mark of protection, because under demi-laws they were, as people of the book, entitled to live in Muslim lands under certain conditions, which included paying a tax. In reality, these marks invited oppression. Obviously, they could range from literal badges to arm patches to strange things like Jewish women having to wear shoes of two different colors. And there was one Jewish badge that looked like the two tablets of the law, which is kind of lovely if you can ignore the fact that it was used for discrimination. And there were sumptuary restrictions on Christians carrying weapons as well and on riding horses or camels or building houses that overlooked Muslim houses. In 1631, Sultan Murad IV declared, quote, Insult and humiliate infidels in garment, clothing, and manner of dress according to Muslim law and imperial statute. Henceforth, do not allow them to mount a horse, wear sable fur, sable fur caps, satin, and silk velvet. Do not allow their women to wear mohair caps wrapped in cloth and Paris cloth. Do not allow infidels and Jews to go about in Muslim manner and garment. Hinder and remove these kinds. Do not lose a minute in executing the order that I have proclaimed in this manner. End quote. So it wasn't subtle, was it? I mean, it's, that's right there. Pretty <laughs> in your face. Discriminate on these people. Don't let them wear certain things. Do yeah. it now. Yeah. The early medieval church also, unfortunately, took up this idea and made Jews and Muslims in Christian lands wear badges of shame. And there are plenty of other badges of shame in Western culture. And if you think of the scarlet letter in Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, that was a real thing, a scarlet A for adulterers. Peter the Great, good old Peter the Great, had a huge heavy medal that he would make drunkards wear about their necks. The dunce cap became a badge of shame for stupid children. It was originally a perfectly respectable hat, but it was associated with the philosopher John Dunce, presumably John Dunce Scotus. Yes, I believe so. Yes. And when his ideas fell out of favour, it became associated with stupidity. 
Occasionally, these laws backfired. The Tignon Laws of 1786 in Louisiana were laws intended to discourage European men from forming relationships with black and mixed-race women, who at that time were very fashionable and extravagantly dressed with you know, jewels and feathers in their hair. And the white women did not like this, especially since some of them were sort of nearly 100% white anyway, but according to the racist laws of the time, were considered black. And there was this whole kind of, how dare they steal our men you know, they have no right type thing. Some of them were slaves, but some of them were free. So they <laughs> those pressured... Are, those attractive, nearly white black women yeah, pretty stealing much. our men. Pretty much. Um, if so only they, our men weren't attracted to women. So they required the chappie in charge to make these laws, which required all the women of the so-called slave class, free or otherwise, to wear the tignon, which was traditionally a slave garment. It was kind of a head wrap type thing. So they weren't allowed to put jewels and feathers in their hair anymore, and they had to wear the tignon. And what happened is that the women obeyed. But they started wearing tignons in wonderful, beautiful styles and colours, making a big fashion statement of it. And they would put jewels and feathers in the tignons, which wasn't illegal because it wasn't their hair. That was what was in the law. And eventually it caught on. And once Empress Josephine, as in Napoleon Bonaparte Josephine, started wearing it herself, it became this highly fashionable mainstream trend. And today it's still part of black fashion in Louisiana. And this really shows how the language of clothing can be changed or subverted. This was meant to be a disgraceful thing, covering your hair, your glory, in a cloth like a slave, to keep the dirt or the sun off her hair as a slave would as she worked. But instead, it became this crown of glory in its own right, this piece of clothing that was so queenly that it befitted the Empress Josephine. It's a wonderful story. The closest thing I've ever seen to a badge of shame in modern use is an actual oversized name badge worn by a supermarket cashier which said, I, name written in felt-tip pen, forgot my name badge today. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's degrading. <laughs> Funnily enough, the, today the badge of shame has actually been taken up in Thailand, where police who have committed misdemeanours, things like being late or littering, uh, are theoretically made to wear a pink Hello Kitty armband. Wow. Just to shame them. But apparently it has never been enforced. I guess it was such an effective deterrent... They never had to. to. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. We also saw a badge of shame fairly recently during COVID. We did. Well, that's really the subject of our next half episode, is it not? Well, we're going to talk about masks. Mm. Yes. I I want to devote a smaller, shorter episode. Episode 3.5 will be about the symbolism of masking, since that's in the news again recently. But it was at... (sighs) A shop, it was at Gilmore's, which is like a bulk outlet store, and people who were not wearing masks were told to Oh, that's put right, we had to wear the badge. Little, yeah, it was literally like a little Star of David badge. Yeah. It looked well, a lot like a Star of David. It said, I'm exempt from wearing a mask. Yeah. Proving uh, you had a medical <laughs> exemption kind of thing. It, yeah. it, it purported to be an exemption badge. There was something about it that really evoked the Star of David. I can't remember what I mean, it was, it was yeah... We said we said at the time. Oh yeah, this is like a Star of David badge. Yeah. Anyway, um, not to you know overemphasize our plight in this horrific situation. We were deeply persecuted. Yeah. Anyway, the sixth reason, technically, for some true laws, was to prevent the wealthy from wasting all their money extravagantly. And I'm not saying this wasn't a genuine concern because there were times, especially at court, when nobles were just vying to outbling each other and they were spending vast amounts of money. Uh, The Elizabethan court would be a very good example of this. They were indeed. But insanely the trouble with restricting the very rich from spending as much as they want is what do you do when the not so very rich are then able to buy just as much of the same stuff as the very rich so how do you tell who is richer now 
Because if you can't indulge in more conspicuous consumption than the person lower down the social ladder than you, what is even the point of being at the top of the ladder? Now, this became a big issue in the late medieval period, because the Black Death meant that the price of labour went up. You had fewer available peasants to do all your work for you, because most of them had died. And the few that were left could therefore bargain for better working conditions. And there were also just lots of lands and goods left abandoned when their rich owners died of the plague. So suddenly, instead of there being almost a simple two-tier society of the very rich and then the peasants, you had the rise of a middle class who, for the first time, could afford to buy nice things, maybe even as nice as what the nobility had, and the nobility were not at all happy about this. And then there was a fascinating conflict between two very firmly held beliefs in the medieval psyche. They discovered a contradiction in their worldview. So the first thing that they believed was that there was this divine right of kings. So kings represented God, and therefore they could tell you what to wear if they wanted to. Society was and should be stratified, should have these different layers, and you should be content with your lot. And there were so many medieval sermons preached on being content in the sphere that God gave you and not trying to change it. This was a society that was so concerned with maintaining the status quo that it crippled its own technological advancement by guild rules with no cobbler, for instance, could invent a better way of making shoes because that wouldn't be fair on the other cobblers. But on the other hand, there was this other thing going on in their psyche where, like most people throughout history, they also believed quite firmly that their bodies did belong to them and so did their money. And in fact, that's a, a staple of Christianity, which is what medieval culture was based on. And it was therefore nobody's business what they wanted to buy and wear. So sumptuary laws were on the one hand sort of accepted, like way more than they would be today. But on the other hand, they were flouted like all the time and very, very hard to police. In Florence in the 1300s, there was a bit of a flurry of sumptuary legislation, most of it directed at women, and some of it oddly stringent. I don't know why, but between 1322 and 1325, a woman could only have four dresses for wearing in public, and only one of them could be red. Because. And these laws were being ignored, so there was a crackdown. And this led to some hilarious anecdotes of fashionably dressed women scurrying into churches pursued by the fashion police, claiming sanctuary. There's Tell a, us a hilarious anecdote, Smokey. There is a hilarious anecdote I found online where a woman was caught wearing a fur above her station. Ermine, I believe. The chappy found her and asked, you know, what she thought she was doing. And by chappy, we do mean fashion policeman. Exactly. And she immediately said, oh, no, no, this isn't ermine. This is suckling. And he said, what is suckling? And she replied... It is a beast. It is not a beast. No. It was a lie. It was a lie. But then how do you really prove that it's Herman? You know? <laughs> so just bear in mind that while the laws were on the books, they weren't necessarily followed or enforced consistently, but that's not for a lack of specificity. Medieval kings realized that the answer to the problem of the new middle class was to impose different sumptuary laws on different classes of people, so everyone was restricted in what they could buy according to their rank or wealth. It was a bit like saying, okay, Jeff Bezos, you're only allowed to buy three super yachts. JK Rowling, you're only allowed one yacht. Successful neurosurgeon, you can't have a yacht at all, but you can have a Bentley. And, you know, primary school teacher, you're not allowed anything nicer than a 2008 Toyota. What kind of Toyota? A manky one. Prius. Sure. That, no, mankier than that. A RAV? I don't know cars. That way you can still tell who's richer than whom, and everyone theoretically stays within its means. So the laws got very detailed. From one law in 1363, and I quote, Knights with lands worth more than 200 marks annually, and their families. Fabric worth no more than six marks for the whole cloth. No cloth of gold, nor a cloak, mantle, or gown lined with pure miniver, 
sleeves of ermine, or any material embroidered with precious stones. Women may not wear ermine or weasel fur, or jewels except those worn in their hair. Yeomen and their families, fabric worth no more than 40 shillings, for the whole cloth. No jewels, no gold, silver, embroidery, enamelware, or silk, no fur except lamb, rabbit, cat, or fox. Women not to wear a silk veil. End quote. You can see again the lost language of clothing here, can't you? Because with our modern eyes, well, we wouldn't know if someone was wearing cat fur. <laughs> but even if we did, we wouldn't go, ah, oh, that's a yeoman's wife. But if you were another yeoman's wife, you would know. And you would know if she was wearing things she shouldn't be wearing. And you would be envying the rich women who could wear silk veils. And you'd know that you weren't one of them. So identities were again strengthened and enforced by these rules. And the classes were maintained even amid the shifting political landscape. I think we have to take a moment to talk about the king, and I use the term advisedly, the king of sumptuary laws, the man who was intensely aware of the way that clothing could be used to unite and divide. And I'm speaking, of course, of Louis the Fourteenth. <laughs> Louis the Fourteenth. So to place Louis the Fourteenth, he was two Louis before Louis the Sixteenth, who was the one married to Marie Antoinette when the French Revolution happened. And the French Revolution happened in part as a reaction against the extravagant excesses of the French court, and the blame for that can somewhat be traced back to Louis Fourteenth. Louis was born into a Europe in which Italy and Spain, especially Spain, were the dominant powers in both politics and fashion. Everyone in Europe copied the Spanish court, which meant that at the time everyone was wearing lots of black, partly because the Spanish Habsburgs were serious Catholics and shunned frippery, but also because really black, black dye was extremely expensive to produce and was sourced from Spain's overseas colonies. France at this time was totally dependent on other nations for its textile production and for its fashions. And Louis decided, as a very hard-headed political decision, despite the fact that he was fond of clothes himself, to make France self-sufficient in textiles and the fashion capital of the world. And he succeeded so spectacularly that Paris still is the fashion capital of the world, even while France has declined significantly as a political and military power. He did this by means of subterranean laws, more of the you shall wear than the you shall not wear variety. Louis commanded that textile manufacturers bring out new fabric designs twice a year, summer and winter, which made it very obvious to everyone who was keeping up with the fashions and who was wearing last year's fabric. And this sped up the pace of fashion faster than it had ever gone before. This was, in fact, the beginning of fast fashion. He instituted dress codes for Versailles, which was no small thing when you consider that literally all the nobility had to live at Versailles. It was more like a town than a palace. The codes were very formal. Men and even young boys had to wear swords at court, and there were rental shops outside for people who forgot theirs. Uh, he banned the mantua, which was a more kind of casual, schlumpy dress that women liked. Well, we say schlumpy. I mean, they were incredibly fancy, but they were a little bit less structured and uncomfortable. And he insisted he liked the more formal type of dresses, which ended up evolving into the incredibly wide pannier style. And I recommend looking these up because they are just mind-bogglingly wide. However wide you think they are in your mind, look one up, you'll think it's a parody. It's not. They were just insane. And when you consider just how many metres of silk went into these things and how expensive it was to produce a metre of silk back then, you can imagine how significant this would have been for the industry. Louis also threw lavish balls and feasts and entertainments, and he chose new dress codes for each one to force his courtiers to buy new clothes. In his defence, he did actually subsidise their clothing costs. He made a special limited edition jacket every year that he would bestow on only 50 men, and it was a great honour to wear it. And he favoured incredibly frilly, elaborate, colourful, pretty, fun sort of Easter egg clothes that were the polar opposite of the Spanish black. 
Now, from a modern perspective, you, you might kind of think, okay, was he was he gay? He's quite flamboyant. He's quite flamboyant. He was not gay. He was, in effect, aggressively... <laughs> Notoriously un-gay. Aggressor- aggressively heterosexual, yes. <laughs> Enthusiastically heterosexual. And this sort of points again to the way clothing language changes, um, especially in Europe. It just wasn't considered shallow and, and vapid and girly to be interested in your dress. It's just like the way that today all of that interest in colour and shape has been translated onto cars. Exactly. Yes, you're not girly for... For having, really like, flames on your hot rod. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also, you know, there's still the a bit of a dichotomy between the, the American and English style of masculinity in dress and the continental Europe style, mm. as immortalised in the famous song from Legally Blonde the Musical, Is He Gay or European? Culture. Well, in any case, it worked extremely well like surprisingly successful at one point one third of the working population of paris were employed in the clothing trade in some form or another and this actually caused a few disasters when there were periods of mourning at court because suddenly nobody was buying clothes anymore and the industry dried up for months at a time but what it did for france as a whole is extremely impressive because it resulted in genuine trickle-down fashion for probably the first time in history, because the courtiers had to essentially replace their wardrobe every six months, there was a thriving second-hand market for fabric and garments. Those who weren't at Versailles didn't need to worry about wearing last year's clothes. They didn't care if they were doing that. And so they were thrilled to get their hands on these gorgeous fabrics from the now famous sparkling wonder that was Versailles. So the French became fashion conscious in a way that still persists and is taken quite seriously. It's not considered effeminate or shallow to be deeply interested in dress in France. And ironically, two generations later when Marie Antoinette was queen, the people hated her not just for her extravagance, they were kind of used to that, but because she unpatriotically eschewed French silks for cottons, and she wore comparatively simple white gowns when she was going through her rustic cottage core era, if you will, even going so far as to have an official portrait painted in this kind of very below her station dress. Disgusting. Yeah, the chemise à la reine, I think it was called. By that time, French fashion had become such a matter of national identity that she was seen as quite scandalous for turning her back on it because she just wasn't doing her duty as a queen by wearing the right things. Which ironically leads us to the beginning of the end of sumptuary laws. The French Revolution, which propagated all around the Western world the idea that all men should be equal and that the class system was oppressive, was a natural terminus point for sumptuary laws in the way that they had been implemented throughout the Middle Ages. Now, crucially, this did not mean that people were now free to wear what they wanted. The new ideology was as restrictive as the old. If you know anything about the French Revolution, this will not surprise you. People, not a great time. Not a great time. A time that's nicknamed the terror is not usually ideal. <laughs> Looking back on it, mistakes were made. Hmm. People were free to be equal, but they were only free to be equal. So wearing the uniform of the working class proved your devotion to Republican ideals. We see this even today in communist countries, uh, like North Korea has quite strict rules about not wearing things that are too showy or too Western, because you don't want to disrupt the socialist principles. Of, there are basically the only five hairstyles that are approved. There Anything are approved else hairstyles, is considered yeah. too showy. Yes, because the idea is not to stand out because... You are only a comrade among comrades and everything not forbidden is compulsory. Yes, exactly, like the ants. So during and after the French Revolution, you essentially had reverse sumptuary laws via mob rule, where wearing clothes that were too fancy marked you as one of the nobility, which was very bad because that would tend to lead you to the guillotine. 
people dress down in the gear of the working class, either to prove their devotion to the Republican ideals that the French Revolution was supposedly founded on, or to at least look like they did so they wouldn't get singled out for execution. And ironically, the white gowns that Marie Antoinette had worn, the chemie à la reine, became kind of ironically popular at this time. And from then on, sumptuary laws were almost replaced by social pressure to perform the functions of inclusion and exclusion. They still existed here and there. There were the Tignon laws, which I mentioned before. There were sumptuary laws in Britain during World War II to conserve cloth. But for the most part, the idea that a ruler could tell his subjects what to wear on the basis of rank was beginning to look quite obnoxious. And yet, if we think of, say, the 19th century, it's obvious that people still very much did dress according to class. So how did that work? I mean, if anything, it was considered a bigger problem than it had been before. The Industrial Revolution was a bit like the Black Death in the kind of social change it made. It meant that fabric and trimmings were cheaper and cheaper, and the middle class was larger and larger and more and more wealthy. Plus you had people going off to America, which was a much less class-conscious place, and then they'd make a million dollars over there and swan back to England thinking they were as good as the aristocracy. You had maids who could dress almost as well as their mistresses, and even be mistaken for their mistresses, which was not cool. It was just a world gone topsy-turvy, and the upper class were not happy at all about this. One reaction was to put their servants into uniforms. Before this, there was livery, which was kind of like quasi-military uniform on feudal estates, and it was seen as a perk of the job, actually. But servants often just wore their own clothes. There was no need to mark them out as lower than the mistress of the house, because it was obvious. But now, it was easier to put your entire household staff into a single uniform, and you had a clear reason to do so, because you didn't want your servants to be mistaken for your family, and you wanted to make it very clear who was who. And this was the same time that the ideal of the silent, invisible servant really came into play as well, with you know the narrow back stairs and the servants' quarters hidden away, and the general wish that they would be not seen or heard. But another reaction was to move away from simple acquisition as a marker of wealth to the subtler, more gatekeepy language of taste. Because money can't buy class. You know, it can buy tons of lace, because lace is now being produced by machinery. So simply wearing lots of lace no longer shows that you're one of the upper crust. But if you wear the lace correctly, you know, according to these ever more complex rules of etiquette, after consulting with designers in exclusive salons, now that is much harder to fake. You have to know the right people. You have to breathe in the kind of rarefied airs with the tastemakers. Sometimes true class was even shown in restraint from luxury. You could spot the nouveau riche because they wore too many jewels or clothing that was too bright or flashy. Think of the English aristocracy today with their demure tweeds and their understated pearls. They're not dressed up like movie stars on the red carpet because they're above that sort of thing. I mean, imagine going to the Tudor court and telling them, you know, if you're really classy, you'll turn it down. It just wouldn't have happened. You know, the Tudor court was all about showing as much of your wealth on your person as you could, even if you had to mortgage your estate to do so. So this is a a very big shift. And uh, the guy to blame for a lot of this was the good old Beau Brummel. Now, Beau Brummel was basically a socialite and a 'er ne'er-do-well. He had too much money and free time, and he pretty much devoted his life to dress, to being a sort of witty, well-dressed man. Now, this was Regency era, okay, so Jane Austen era. So men's fashion had already calmed down a bit from the really pastel-coloured Rococo excesses of Louis XIV, but it was still bright and cheerful. You could wear colours. And Rommel didn't want bright and cheerful. He wanted elegance. So he decided to perfect elegance. And that meant plain, streamlined clothes that were impeccably tailored and impeccably worn. He used to spend hours every day standing in front of his mirror, tying cravat after cravat until it was just right, 
while guests, including the future King George IV, came to admire him and take notes. He believed in spotlessly clean linen, which was expensive to accomplish, especially once the Industrial Revolution kicked in and the air quality plummeted. He used to send his laundry out of London to be cleaned in the fresh country air, which was tremendously expensive. And he believed in coats that were perfectly tailor-made to fit without a single crease or wrinkle. Now, the actual look of this garment was quite understated. It wasn't flashy. He believed that if you caused the average bloke on the street to turn his head after you as you went past, you'd done something wrong. But it was still a very self-obsessed, very class-obsessed, ultimately very effeminate sort of dress. It was dandyism. So naturally, people loved it. And after his death, the Victorians took his ideas and further snobbified and refined them into the kind of black-tie, white-tie, complicated system of evening wear that we still use today. It was the kind of thing that people who weren't quite the thing tried to get right, but they couldn't. Maybe they wore a ready-made bow tie, or their boiled shirt front popped, or their coat lapels were too wide, some egregious social faux pas. There's a whole scene in Gordy Night by Dorothy Sayers where Lord Peter Whimsey, who's the consummate gentleman, demonstrates his mastery of class and his manliness in knowing how to wear a stiff shirt well. Apparently a very difficult garment to get because it's, you know, impossible. It's hard. It doesn't work. You can see the the way that the thought patterns of the French Revolution and the Enlightenment works out in this idea that elegance really is encapsulated in everything understated and minimal. So this was a tremendously effective way to class people because the differences became so subtle. It was very insulting to say that a man dressed like a waiter, even though waiters wore basically the same outfit. And on the contrary, you would reveal your embarrassing ignorance if you mistook a true gentleman for a waiter, because that meant you didn't know the subtle differences when you should have. And in a way, it created an entirely new language of clothing that was like the secret code you made up with your friends at school, full of allusions and insinuations and double meanings, which you couldn't learn without being in the in-group. And if you couldn't speak it perfectly, you'd sound like an idiot, at least to the in-group. So taste became king. But unlike today, where fashion comes from the edges of society, street fashion makes its way to the catwalk, the Victorians had a very restrictive view of who could be a taste maker. Even in fashionable society, there was much less opportunity for stepping outside the norm and a much higher emphasis on being correct, so-called, following the tastemakers, than on being original, being a tastemaker. To be able to dictate fashion, you had to be either a royal, or very nearly a royal, or of course one of the professionals that the royals employed. There's a great example of this in how young ladies were presented at court to Queen Victoria. Now these were well-off young ladies, by definition, most of their fathers had titles, and you might think that these would be the tastemakers of society, but no, the rules for clothing were very very strict. White gowns, two plumes worn on the left side of the head, three if you were married, a train three and a half to four meters long, And if you wanted to skip the plunging neckline and short sleeves, you needed a doctor's note. And if you weren't dressed correctly, you wouldn't even get in the door. So this is not the Met Gala. This is a society with a serious need to fit in. Fashion at this time was almost a matter of morality. Very much so. You could not opt out of following the current fashions and still be a respectable member of society. A lot of books talk about correct clothing, and people were really terrified to wear anything that was going to disgrace them by being incorrect, there's a funny story about Emily Bronte, who is the most kind of irascible and antisocial Bronte sister, and she absolutely horrified her sisters by insisting on continuing to wear a leg of mutton sleeves once they had gone out. That, that kind of thing wasn't just a faux pas, it was morally suspicious. 
So you would spend enormous amounts of stress and money making sure you had your correct riding habit and morning wrapper and tea gown and walking dress and day dress and opera dress and theatre dress, which were not the same thing. And you might change, you know, four or five times a day to make sure that you were at all times correct. And we can see just how concerned people were by this by looking at the proliferation of etiquette manuals of the day. The same thing happened in the medieval era. There were just all these etiquette books coming out because these newly rich people were like, help, what do I do, how do I do it? And if you read older books like Louisa May Alcott, you'll see compliments like, you look very correct, dear, which, you know, we'd consider that quite a cold compliment today, but people found it genuinely reassuring to have someone say, yes, you've gotten it right, you'll be okay, no one's going to laugh at you, you won't embarrass yourself. I think this is actually a very strong example of what we're talking about in terms of corporate identity. It became so critical to your identity as a person that you fit into the group by knowing all of the subtle particular rules about appearance that you became extremely anxious about anyone thinking that the the slightest visual item out of place might indicate that there was something socially or morally out of place with you that you were no longer synchronized or integrated into the larger corporate whole. And perhaps the most extreme example of the rigidity of social custom here is in Victorian mourning clothes. As a society, the Victorians were obsessed with death, like the ancient Egyptians or Gondor during the Third Age, and mourning had this very theatrical component. Women's mourning costumes were meant to be at least as fancy as their regular clothes, as the quality of their mourning dress reflected on their feelings for the deceased. So again, clothing is a language. The way that you dress in mourning says something about how you feel. There were different degrees. For a woman mourning an immediate family member, there was close or full or deep mourning, which was all black, matte fabrics, black edge lingerie, a black veil with black ribbons over the face, black furs, black edged handkerchief, very limited jewellery that would either need to be black or somehow mourning themed. They had a lot of mourning themed jewellery. And a lot of black. Some of it was like (laughs) skulls, literally like a skull Mm. or a tombstone or a weeping angel. And often it would contain like a lock of your dead husband's hair. Classy. Yeah, they, they were really into it. And this had to be worn for a year. And after that, she could go wild and add a few touches of white to her outfit, like a white collar or cuffs. And after nine months of that, were three months of ordinary mourning, where the dresses were still black, but they could be shiny, like silk. And she had a few more options for jewellery and accessories. That's two two years of this dress. Then there were six months of half mourning, where she could wear subdued colours, like grey and lilac. And then, in theory, she could go back to her regular clothes, but if she were older, it was considered very appropriate for her to not go out of mourning at all. Queen Victoria famously wore mourning for the rest of her long life after Albert died, and while this was seen as a little bit eccentric, it was also proof of her extreme devotion and wifely loyalty, so some people emulated it. And obviously this was expensive. You could sometimes dye your existing clothes black. But there was a lively industry in selling mourning clothes. Mourning establishments were just huge, like a department store. And even though it wasn't technically a legal requirement, a sumptuary law per se, the social expectation of conformity was extreme. So from a book called Funeral Customs, written in 1926 by Bertram S. Puckle, about the Victorians, this is his post-Victorian, but he was writing about them, we find this anecdote. A superior servant, a girl, married a house painter. Within a year, the husband fell from a ladder and was killed. 
The poor little widow bought a cheap black dress and a very simple black straw hat to wear at the funeral. Her former employer, who had much commended this modest outlay, met the girl a few days later swathed in crepe, her poor little face only half visible under a hideous widow's bonnet complete with streamers and a veil. Asked why she had made these purchases, she explained that her neighbours and relations had made her life unbearable because she did not want to wear widow's weeds, and at last she had to give in. They said that if I would not wear a bonnet, it proved we were never married, she sobbed. Times have changed. So what happened during the 20th century that moved us to where we are today, where the tastemakers are no longer these elite people, or at least where the elite are not necessarily subject to tastemakers, but can be tastemakers of all kinds? Well, I think money and industrialization had a lot to do with it. Because stratification has always been good for the fashion industry. The more categories of clothes you have, the more markets you have. So as class distinctions began to break down during the 20th century, the fashion industry found other ways to split society into demographic categories. In fact, you could argue that there's a bit of a chicken and egg here, could you not? The the fashion industry drove the breakdown of class distinctions because it was really in their economic best interest to create more fashion categories than naturally existed. And now that you had effective mass media and mass production and this booming middle class, all kinds of artificial social categories became popular. For instance, we mentioned last time how children used to dress like miniature adults, but as fashion became a real industry, young women began to be distinguished by wearing white dresses and avoiding rich colors, and then we got the concept of teenagers, and then later tweens, and with every category you could have different clothes. It's an interesting shift, because for a Victorian or Edwardian young lady, the aim was to look like her mother. The goal in life was to put her hair up and wear, you know, low-cut evening gowns and lengthen her skirts and so on. Adulthood was the goal. And adults were considered fashionable, even into old age if they wanted to be. They didn't always. But that, that they could be. And women who dressed too young for their age were called mutton dressed as lamb, and they were considered just ridiculous. It's not that people didn't want to look youthful and, you know, not haggard. In fact, there was a tremendous emphasis on that. But they didn't orient their fashion around what young people were wearing, Because, like, they were young. They they didn't know as much about fashion. Experience hones taste. Why would you follow the guys who were new at this, you know? And now it's the complete opposite. Yeah, because over the 20th century, things shifted so that youth rather than maturity was the fashion goal. Coolness rather than taste became a dominant factor. So women wanted to look as young as they could for as long as they could. Forever 21, if you will. And now telling a 23-year-old woman that she dresses like her mother is an insult rather than a compliment. Absolutely. I mean, women still get mocked for dressing younger than their age, but only if they can't pull it off. You know, if they're toned and slim enough to wear skinny jeans and a crop top when they're 50 on the cover of some women's magazine, you know, that's celebrated, that's slaying. This has to be related to the beauty of clothes themselves diminishing. Middle-aged ladies today often don't dress in a way that causes young girls to aspire to their clothing. But I'm sure it also says things about the upending of society and the disintegration or the decohesion that we talked about last time. There are still tastemakers, but who they are has both changed but also greatly expanded. There's still haute couture, as they say in French, and it's still snobbish and elitist, which is why it's a French word, but there are now so many grassroots fashion movements and subcultures and clothing means, and the big brands are actually watching them and copying them to cash in on them. So the tastemakers can sometimes be 17-year-old kids from a rough neighborhood who know what cool is. And the fact that we look to youth to determine what's cool and with it is unusual to say the least, pathological really, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, and we have become a culture of folly. 
the youth have always had fads, but in the past, people generally either smiled tolerantly or they disapproved of the fads and tried to correct the youths. They didn't try to copy it and feel passé if they couldn't. We also have another way of dividing ourselves with clothing, and that's ethically. For most of history, if you'd suggested, say, that people shouldn't wear fur, they'd have just thought you were nuts. People didn't just wear furs, they put you know, feathers and entire taxidermied birds on their hats, and they sewed iridescent beetle casings onto their dresses, and they put butterfly wings and brooches and used horsehair to shape tailored garments. It was just a very normal part of life that dead animals were part of what you wore. Nowadays, we're a little bit more squeamish. Even if you might wear a real fur, you probably wouldn't wear it with the head attached, like a fox fur. And if you did, you know, you might get red paint thrown on you. We still use animal products such as wool and leather, but increasingly it is a controversial issue and something that big brands are wary about doing. There are, you know, sweatshops and sustainable agriculture and using hemp bamboo instead of cotton because the bamboo is less pesticide heavy and slow fashion and upcycling and buying from black owned or women owned clothing brands and even the ethics of wearing vintage pieces of clothing. And we'll talk about some of these things in a later episode because some of them are legitimate moral questions. So we'll definitely be doing a future episode. We're going to do a post-millennial clothing episode, which will delve into some of those kinds of questions. I do think that Western Christians, to our shame, have kind of dismissed a lot of the ethical stuff as sort of leftist hippie nonsense. Which is a bit strange, yeah. considering that Christians have historically been quite invested in ethics. But for yeah. now, let me ask you, do we still have sumptuary laws today? Kind of, and it is surprisingly difficult to research. So some countries have public decency laws about how much clothing you must wear, which is, I guess, sort of a sumptuary law, kind of. New Zealand, I discovered, technically does not have a specific law against nudity. I feel like you will get in trouble if you engage in it in many circumstances. But I there isn't almost a want to law. test this now. Please do not. Walk down the street nude and wait for a policeman to accost me and then go, right, what law are you arresting me under? It would probably be like causing a public disturbance. Yeah, it's public disturbance. Indecency. Yeah. Frightening the pukeko. In the US, you may not be able to import clothing from Cuba, I feel, because of the embargo. Or I mean, cigars, yeah, which is for that also matter, which is also sumptuary. Yeah. Uh, some US states forbid people from wearing politically affiliated clothing or badges, etc., within a certain distance from a polling place. To prevent prejudice. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was weird. Uh, several countries ban civilians, including children, from wearing camouflage clothing. <laughs> Probably countries you don't necessarily want to live in. Well, it's mostly the Caribbean, weirdly. Um, in France, any kind of religious clothing is banned in certain places. So there was that whole thing where you can't wear like a hijab or a cross necklace or whatever in public schools. In the US, it violates the flag code to use the flag as advertising, which includes putting it on clothes... In reality, obviously, it's not policed. At all. But there have been some instances of it causing issues, like Nike at one point was going to release shoes with the Betsy Ross flag on them, but then back down because people were like, you're putting the flag on shoes which would go on the ground. This is, you know, very disrespectful, which goes to show Isn't people still think about symbolism. Yeah. So apparently in 1989, the Supreme Court struck down the flag laws as laws because of freedom of speech. But socially, it is still a contentious issue. And this comes up, you know, on the 4th of July in sports games and people are wearing a flag as a cape or on a t-shirt or whatever. Mm. Or on... And uh, is that respectful? You know, barbecue paper plates with the flag on them, things like that. Ah, eating off the flag. Eating off the flag, exactly. Yeah. So that's quite an interesting one. It's interesting that they, the symbolism of the flag is still much more obvious to people than most of the other yeah. symbols that we've lost throughout history. Nevertheless, I think pretty much everywhere today, you can wear what you want regardless of rank. I mean, if I wanted to wear something absolutely glorious, like a copy of Kate Middleton's Princess Catherine's wedding dress. If I could afford, as a 
common schmuck of the proles to pay the same designer in the same fashion house, whoever it was who made her dress, and I could afford the fabric, I could have it. No one would tell me that's a queen's dress, princess's dress, you know, how dare you, you're not worthy. Because if I have the money nowadays, I am worthy. So that is very historically unusual. You would definitely get some strange looks, and people would probably comment on it. But that even but that I don't would think be anyone would say it wasn't within my rights to do it. Yeah, right? even that would be broken up into two segments, most likely. There'd be the people that'd be like, you're so weird. And then there'd be the people like, wow, you're so amazing, stunning yeah. and brave. Yeah, I don't think anyone But would no like, one would be how saying, dare how you? dare you wear that, Kate Middleton wore it. She's better than you. You can't, you don't have the right. To be fair, she was also a commoner, technically, so maybe that's not the Which did cause some problems in Britain. Yeah, well. A topic yeah. for another time. There you go. So let me put you on the spot. Is that a good thing or should we have some kind of sumptuary laws i agree with sumptuary laws that say you shouldn't wear a swastika for example Seems i think fair. you have the right to say you know as the german nation we are not doing that again you just can't but what about laws that say you may not wear something that indicates a social rank inappropriate to your actual station i can't say it bothers me but you know what, what do you think uh, my intuition is that it would be appropriate to have something because I think of the places in Proverbs, for instance, where Solomon talks about how it's like an overturning of the natural order for a slave girl to become the mistress and that kind of thing. But it's something we'll have to work out in more detail when we get to the post-millennial clothing episode because it requires a great deal more thought. It seems like you'd have to overturn society quite mm. largely before that, that would that's become... Part of the question is how do you contextualise it? So, something to look forward to in upcoming episodes. For now, a special thanks to all of our paid members who have been so supportive of our work and especially so patient with the delay in getting this episode out. If you're not a paid member, we'd love you to join us on our Signal discussion group by becoming a paid member. Just head over to truemagic.nz and follow your nose and you'll also get fortnightly bonus episodes and of course the warm glow of re-enchanting the world just that little bit harder that's it for this episode go forth and present your bodies a living sacrifice to god which is your spiritual service this has been true magic